Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Today, I'm hosting climate experts from Google, Project Drawdown, the Center for Climate and Security, and Battelle. This is the first episode of two that I'm doing with Battelle leading up to their Innovations in Climate Resilience Conference in Columbus, Ohio. My guests today are all keynote speakers at that event, and we'll hear some of the climate work they do at their companies and organizations. These are some of the leading voices in the climate universe, and you'll hear how they are tackling climate adaptation. Also, if you're thinking of attending, you can still get the early bird discount if you register before January 20th, 2023. Also, they are still accepting applications for lightning talks for early career scientists and researchers and live demonstration submissions open to any student, researcher, scientist, or climate expert that wants to showcase their innovation, technology, software, prototype, or tool in a hands-on demonstration. The links are in my show notes. All right, let's join Justin Sanchez, who will tell us what Patel hopes to accomplish at that conference. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Dr. Justin Sanchez, Technical Fellow at Battelle. Hi, Justin. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. How are you today? It's uh, really great to uh, join the show. Yeah, I'm just a pleasure to have you on. And we're going to be talking about a conference. We're going to be talking about Battelle. So can you just start us off by grounding us? What is Battelle? Yeah, Battelle is the world's largest applied science and technology not-for-profit organization. We were founded over 90 years ago with a mission to work on some of the world's most difficult problems that have a huge societal impact. And when it comes to a topic of climate and climate resilience, that's one that we're absolutely dedicated to. Well, excellent. And, you know, to be honest, when I first talked with you guys, I thought you were a private corporation. And so it was interesting that you're you're nonprofit and you guys are really dealing with some big projects. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. You know, one of the things that makes us really different than pretty much any other organization that's out there is that, you know, we're not being pulled in one direction or another based upon necessarily market forces or anything like that. We are driven by that science and technology and making sure that we create breakthroughs that have an impact in everyday life and in all of our lives. And, you know, there are a number of topics that cover not only health and national security and environment infrastructure that we focus on as a company. So, so this is just one of the many topics that we as, as a company focus on as a part of our work. Before we get into the conference, tell us what's your role there. And you really do have an interesting background. I think you are at DARPA before this. Yeah. So uh, right now I'm a technical fellow at Battelle. And what that means, I help to develop strategies and on a lot of different topics, but mainly in biotechnology. That's where my uh, main area of expertise is. And and prior to being at Battelle, uh, just like you said, I was the director of the biotech office over at DARPA. And if you've never heard about DARPA before, they're the kind of high tech research branch of the Department of Defense. And while I was there, worked on a lot of really interesting projects spanning from those messenger RNA kind of vaccines that we all took as a part of COVID-19 to neurotechnology, to other kinds of breakthrough technologies that kind of think about sustainability of of a lot of our different technologies that we depend upon for our country. All right. I think that's probably a different episode. I would love to learn more about DARPA, but okay. So we're here to talk about innovations and resilience. The conference that Patel is putting on next March. Can you give us some of the basics there before we dig in a little deeper? So this is a one of a kind kind of an event. It's March 28th through 30th, 2023 in Columbus, Ohio, and it's titled Innovations in Climate Resilience. 
And I, I really want to focus on that word innovations because, you know, there are a lot of conferences that are out there that are kind of talking about climate or the potential impact of climate. We recognize that's all out there and people have been talking about that for many years. This is about bringing together forward-leaning or forward-thinking kinds of, of individuals that want to come up with those innovations and then also want to put those innovations into play, into real life and take actions around them. Being the kind of organization that we are, again, science and technology for the betterment of humanity, we said we're in a critical moment right now in which an organization like Battelle can create a platform to convene and provide an, a place where government officials, where leaders in industry, and where researchers from academia can all come together, share their innovations and their actions, and then we as a community can band together in order to put those into play to really make a meaningful change for climate resilience moving forward in the generations of the future. All right. It might seem obvious, but climate adaptation, climate resilience are relatively new sectors and fields. So you, you alluded to this earlier, but why is Battelle focusing on these things? Well, we've been working on climate related kinds of problems for many, many years, but there's a, an interesting kind of period of time that's happening right now. And I, I think that's really highlighted by the current administration. The government has made a commitment to climate and helping to find solutions for climate change. You know, from a policy point of view, that's important, right? When we as a country say we are going to work on this problem. The second thing that's happened is that through that administration and through Congress, they're also mobilizing resources to virtually all the federal agencies and are calling upon communities to step up and use those government resources in order to find solutions for the climate change that's all around us. Again, being a not-for-profit organization that works not only with the government and the commercial sector and as well as our, our commitment to this technology and solutions for society, we said, okay, we've got to raise our hand and step up and say we can be this organization that can create this platform to convene the leaders and all of these sectors to come together. And then also to meet with our teams of people that are working on Everything from carbon capture to thinking about how we use plastics in a different way, recycle plastics in a different way to create that kind of circular economy. And all of that, that includes things from that technology development all the way to how do you really implement that in your everyday life? And, you know, how do you embrace that technology in your everyday life in order to adapt to the new technologies that might be available to you, but also the new adaptation of your life in your community that leads to a more sustainable kind of a future. So you know, all of those reasons together, why Battelle not only stepped up, but is the, the right kind of an organization to do something like this. And we've been talking about innovation here. Can you just give us an example of some of this innovation work related to adaptation that you guys are doing there at Battelle? Yeah, we have this really interesting project that probably a lot of people have never heard of. And the whole project is to take plastic bottles or plastic waste and break down that plastic and turn it into a valuable material. Again, a lot of people don't know that the molecules inside of plastic bottles are actually really important, really valuable. But the technology has never existed up until very recently in work that Battelle does, in which we've created this system. It's an integrated system. Think of a box that you can put in the plastic bottles on one end. It'll break them down into those fundamental molecules and then build them up into a valuable material that you could use for a, another purpose. 
again, we had initially done some of this work for the Department of Defense. You can imagine being in some kind of austere environment. You got a lot of waste around you, but you might need a valuable material. You might turn that plastic bottle into something in, in that context. But it also has implications for the broader aspects of society where we are all users of plastic bottles like that. And right now we might just kind of throw it into a bin and like hope for the best for it. But there might be a new future in which we change the way that we live our lives and the way that we use resources like that through the use of technology to produce a valuable material in a very different way than we all experience today. So again, one example of many in the area that uh, Battelle is working in kind of circular plastic economies, and we see a huge uh, potential for that in the future. So if you want to learn about those kinds of things, as well as a lot of other technologies that Battelle and other folks are doing in this space, please do come and join us at the conference. Sounds excellent. Okay, so adaptation resilience are very big umbrella things. What are some of the major themes that will be at the conference? So this is another thing that we worked really hard to design into the conference. And uh, for those of you in the climate community, you might have gone like these very specialized kind of conferences that focus on one topic or maybe two topics. We said, you know, we're not going to do that. We need to bring together a number of fields because climate resilience and, and adaptation is a multi-sector kind of a problem. From my perspective, it's a macro problem that requires many dimensions to be integrated and brought together in order for those solutions to really create an effect. So therefore, we have themes as a part of our event that cover national security, cover infrastructure, environment restoration, health and agriculture, as well as kind of these broader kind of topics like net zero and how a number of factors really contribute into net zero. And having seen a lot of the people that have already started submitting abstracts for our, our event and our keynote speakers that have already signed up to deliver their remarks for the event, we've got all of those areas covered. So if like there's one reason to come and join us at the event is come get immersed in an event over two and a half days where you're going to see all of those topics. You're going to meet with all of those people and you're going to be able to interact in a way that you won't be able to interact at any other conference. This is actually our second time doing this. And we ran a little bit of a survey after our first one, and we got feedback that this was one of the most engaging, dynamic, and interesting events that anybody has ever kind of attended as a part of their experiences at conferences. So it's definitely something to not be missed. Okay, so you just prompted me for my next question. So there was a previous conference. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did there? Yeah, so it, it was also Innovations in, in Climate Resilience, and it was our inaugural conference we launched it. It was in March of, of last year. It was right around the time that the administration was making that commitment to climate resilience. And it was really remarkable to see how many people, even though it was our first one, show up and present their ideas. And while on that first event, innovations were front and center and a lot of innovations did come to the table, what we learned from that first event was innovations alone are not enough to make that huge impact in society that we're, we and others are ultimately trying to make. That's why this second conference, we have a new kind of a goal or a theme of the conference, and it's about bold leaps and actions. Again, this is all around how do we mobilize the community 
to take those actions or to put into play the ideas or the approaches or the technologies that are going to make a difference so that we can create a different way of interacting with our environment and our climate such that we reduce the effects of climate change moving forward. And, you know, I I think that this is going to be a trend moving forward is this dynamic between the new ideas and approaches being generated and then teams and teams and teams of people finding ways of implementing them, not only in the micro scale as an individual in your community, but finding ways to scale those beyond those communities so that they actually make a global impact. This is important for people in the adaptation space. There aren't a lot of adaptation themed events. So you have this one. And a lot of those events actually have a hard time recruiting people from the corporate sector. But that's a focus for you guys for this upcoming conference, right? It absolutely is. And from the people that join from the corporate world, I think that they are focused on creating businesses around climate technologies that, again, make this impact. But they're so focused on kind of those market forces that either make it sustainable or not in terms of how people use it. I think they're looking to branch out into other groups and communities in order to, to try to build support for their technologies too. I mean, that that's a great reason why I think that they join in this kind of an event and have done so not only in this past year, but also this year again. So we're encouraging people to actually attend this conference, but in case they can't, how can someone learn more about what Battelle's doing in the resilience and adaptation space? Yeah, go to our website. And I mean, not only the climate, the ICR 23 website itself, but you can also go to the Battelle webpage and see all that we're doing in climate and in our environment kind of work. It's really extraordinary. I've been at the company for about three and a half years now. It is amazing the breadth of work that is being done inside of Battelle, the depth of the technical expertise that a place like Battelle has, and then the impact of the technologies that are being created. It really is remarkable. If you never checked out not only the climate website, but also the Battelle website, you should go and and take a look. You'll be amazed. And we're always looking for people to, to join our team and our community too. So definitely reach out if you think you can bring your expertise to the mission that we ultimately have. Before we wrap this up, just to give people a little bit more of a primer on the conference, who are some of the keynote speakers that you've recruited? Yeah, so we're very thrilled to have keynote speakers from all across the climate resilience sectors. We have representatives from the leadership of the National Science Foundation that are going to be joining us. We have leadership from Health and Human Services will also be joining us. We have representatives from the Department of Defense that will be sharing what they're doing. And you might not think in terms of climate and climate resilience that the Department of Defense would be a part of that. They absolutely are. We have representatives from a number of organizations that, like the National Academies of Science, that try to create new policies around what is being done in climate resilience. And then to kind of round everything out, we have scientists from some of the top universities that are going to be presenting some perspectives on the latest and greatest science and technology. And then one other group, we were talking about corporations. As part of this discussion, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, it might be a small business that might be involved in you know some new kind of technology that they're bringing into the world. We have a lot of those, but we also have some of the largest corporations that are providing keynotes. So from the likes of Google and Microsoft, we have some representation from those companies to give keynotes about what they're doing on climate and climate resilience. So again, remarkable set of people that are providing keynotes. Again, you'll never see a a group like this at any other place. So you should definitely join us as a part of our event. 
Okay, Justin, so we're actually going to hear from a few of those speakers in the rest of this episode. They're going to just give us a bit of a primer on some of the things that they're going to say at the conference. You're going to join me at the end of this episode to wrap things up. So I'll chat to you soon, Justin. All right. Sounds great. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Jamie Alexander, the director of Drawdown Labs at Project Drawdown. Hi, Jamie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being part of this episode. We're talking to people going to the Patel Conference, but let's just first start off, and I'm familiar with it, but just for my listeners, what is Project Drawdown? Project Drawdown, we're a nonprofit organization that you know really exists in order to research and then communicate to the world what the solutions to climate change are. You may know us from, we had a book out in 2017 that was like a coffee table book that tried to popularize climate solutions. We like we're the first effort to really look around the world and identify what are the solutions to this problem, number one. And number two, are, you know, are these solutions sufficient to address climate change at this, at the speed and scale required? Answer is yes. And then three, like what's the relative importance of different solutions? How much, you know, of our greenhouse gas emissions can they reduce or avoid? And then how much will they cost us over time? And what's the return on investment in them? Well, I appreciate what you guys are doing because I, I think in a way you're just ground truthing a lot of the solutions that people are proposing. Some people say we can accomplish this, but you guys are really kind of looking at that and saying, all right, realistically, these are the solutions. And I think that's very useful because there's too many aspirational conversations going on there. So thank you for Absolutely. approaching it that way. All right. Now, so you are in you – know, this is stuff I didn't know. I thought I knew a lot more about Project Drawdown than I did, but what what is Drawdown Labs? You're the director there. Yeah. So broader project drawdown is sort of, you know, very grounded in the science and what the solutions are. And then drawdown labs is our sort of experimentation grounds for how the verb. So how do we bring climate solutions into the world? So we work with, you know, we've identified, you know, big actors that can this late date. We need big actors, big movers in society to make the big shifts in the short amount of time we have to do it. So we work with companies, investors, and philanthropies to help contextualize our data and the climate solutions and advise them and guide them toward scaling climate solutions in the world, like getting massive amounts of capital away from the bad stuff, like away from fossil fuels and the carbon intensive industries and into climate solutions. And then with corporations, we work with them to, you know, massively shift their operations and the the way they use their resources to scale climate solutions in the world. We can't cover everything that you guys do, but I'm very curious about this drawdown stories. What's that all about? Yeah. So Drawdown Stories is one of our newer, really exciting initiatives run by my colleague, Matt Scott. It's really focused on passing the mic. So, you know, kind of telling stories about climate solutionaries in their own neighborhoods, in their own communities, what's already happening out there, you know, often in ways that we may not be hearing about in other media. So he really works on, you know, going to specific communities, understanding their challenges and their own solutions, and then lifting up those people who are already doing it to inspire other communities around the world. Yeah, well, I'm all about telling stories. I think that's really cool that you're incorporating that as part of more your technical work. So kudos to you guys. All right. So you personally, you're there at Project Drawdown, but I just doing a bit of homework on you. You've kind of come there in an unconventional way. You have this history, I think, doing a lot of work at USAID and just working internationally. How has that work helped you do what you're doing there at Project Drawdown? 
Very insightful observation. Yeah, my work on, you know, international aid at USAID, I lived in Bangladesh for several years at the time I worked at USAID. And that was the experience that made me shift my entire career to work on climate change. Because, you know, obviously, that was in 2008 to 2010. And even then, Bangladeshi people, it was, you know, the, the monsoons were getting worse every year, the place is sinking. So no matter what other work I was, you know, I was there working on malaria, so doing public health work. But no matter how much we made gains on these other issues like health or education, none of that is going to be sustainable if that place is sinking, right? And then that, that's true for every place on the planet. And so, yeah, I mean, just seeing the impact already of climate change then and seeing how Bangladeshi people knew their solutions, like they knew what to do. They knew that it was happening and they understood that like the mangrove forest there in Southern Bangladesh, like protected them from storms and it also absorbs carbon. It just made me realize that number, number one, climate change was already happening and number two, you know, communities around the world were already had solutions, already had the understanding of what their own environments were and what the solutions were. So it just made me want to, you know, focus on solutions and lift up those solutions around the world that already exist. You know, I had some Bangladeshi colleagues. I never actually got to travel there, but I was always just shocked. I think it's something like 140 million people in a country the size of Wisconsin, and half of it is wetland mangroves that, you know, where yeah. not a lot of people live. And so, and to their credit, it sounds like as a developing country, they've done a lot of great things when they move people when the typhoons come in and, or no, yeah, the typhoons. And yeah, I've always been impressed with it because it's just the number of people there is shocking. It is. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, even as funny now, I mean, I'm still very close with a lot of my Bangladeshi colleagues and friends. And now when, you know, when we have extreme weather events here, I'll have them checking on me. You know, it was like, <laughs> nice. I always thought it was like Bangladesh. And I mean, they are obviously like on the front lines, but it's happening. It's happening here too. And I mean, my family moved because of climate change. And I know, you know, that that's happening all over the world. So it's just... This thing that I thought was so far away and was only other people and I was working on the issue on behalf of other people is also deeply personal, you know, and I think more and more of us are going to experience that as well. All right, let's go back and talk a little bit more about the Drawdown Labs. What are the three focus areas for it? Yeah, so we really focus on, um, as I said, you know, that our audiences are businesses, investors, and then philanthropies, because we're really trying to use our data to move those big actors to take big steps. So number one, you know, our theory is that corporate sustainability has for too long been run by like a very small part of the business and very under-resourced and doesn't have a whole lot of decision-making power. I'm talking about sustainability teams. One of our theories of change is that every employee throughout the business needs to be involved in climate action inside the company. And it needs to be written into every job function. Every single job function within a company has a climate angle to it. So marketers can, you know, make decisions around not marketing for fossil fuel companies. You know, people who work in HR can provide green 401ks to all employees. So things like that. So we really work to help to try to make what we call, what we say, you know, every job a climate job. Um, that's not just a few people. It's way, way, way too important for that. And then second, you know, I think corporate sustainability has been, I would say, not meeting the level of the urgency and scope and scale that the the planet is telling us 
is necessary. So we're really trying to level up the kind of the gold standard of corporate sustainability leadership. And we work with a group of large corporations to try to reach that higher standard that we call the drawdown aligned business framework. And then third, we work with investors, philanthropies and impact investors, VCs to try to give them the data that is needed to be able to move capital to climate solutions and away from, again, the fossil fuel industry, big ag, like away from the heavy, you know, the carbon intensive sectors toward climate solutions. Can you share who some of your partners have been? Yeah. So we work with, you know, big companies like Google, LinkedIn, General Mills. We work really across sectors. And then we also work with a few smaller companies to try to kind of level up to companies that we really think have potential to kind of move their industries forward. So it's really a, a testing ground work, you know, seeing what works and trying to bring businesses together around really kind of gnarly, difficult problems and trying to move them forward. Project drawdowns, my understanding, most of what you're dealing with is mitigation, carbon emissions. I mainly focus on climate adaptation on this podcast, but the Patel conference is there's going to be some mixture of both of those. I'm just curious, when you're working more in that carbon space, where do you see the overlap with mitigation of carbon and then climate adaptation resilience? I mean, they are two sides of the, the same coin, right? I mean, we are in the position of having to adapt because we have waited so long to do the work that was necessary to limit global warming. And the longer we wait, the more adaptation is going to be required and the more people are going to be affected and the more suffering we will see and we will all experience. And so they're not at all separable. The longer we wait on the mitigation, the worse the the impacts will be and the more we'll need to adapt. And I, I worry that we're not planning really for that scenario. And I think, you know, there are one of one of the most important pieces of our research over the last year and a half was to understand where there are solutions that address both. Because our team has analyzed 100 climate solutions, but we've actually determined that about 25 of them actually address other things like human health or equity or well-being and address the climate crisis. So there are those solutions you know, that both help human health and well-being and address climate change. And so we'd like to see much more of that because that'll help us move toward a a more resilient future while we also mitigate the impacts. Well, that's great. You know, in the aughts, there was this movement sort of accusing people who are doing adaptation that you're just giving up and you're not going to focus on mitigation. And then it kind of disappeared. But it seems like in the last couple of years, I'm hearing a little bit more of it. And they imply that if you're in the adaptation space, that you're just, you're not thinking mitigation. I try to stress my, if we don't get mitigation under control, there's no way we're going to be able to adapt to things. But it, it is kind of interesting there that friction has sort of come up a little bit more. And it's, it's, I think it's crazy to even accuse people, I guess, in the resilient space that they don't think someone needs to be working on the mitigation side. I don't know if you hear that sort of rhetoric. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I can definitely, yeah, I've definitely heard that too. I moved my family because of climate impacts. And so I've definitely got the reaction like, oh, so you've given up on the Bay Area. And it's like, no, but we should be thinking about how to keep ourselves and our communities safe and prepared while we do the hard work of you know, addressing the core of the issue to keep it from getting worse. We can do both at the same time. And I think we, we're we in a position now where we have to. Oh, yeah, we better. We, we better. All right. Again, I might be putting you on the spot, but can you give us a sneak peek on what you might say at the Innovations and Resilience Conference in Columbus? And keep in mind, no one's going to hold you to this. I get sometimes three days before you come up with a new presentation, but what do you think <laughs> are some of the topics you might cover? 
Yeah. Well, so I'm going to be kind of giving a like a little early preview of some of our latest work at Project Drawdown, which is really focused around the science of climate solutions and how we can move from the understanding what the solutions are to actually putting science behind scaling them in the world. So looking at, you know, not all climate solutions are created equal according to what the like atmosphere feels. So some of them, you know, we need to actually be really, really investing in right now. Things like methane leaks, things like stopping deforestation. Like we can start to prioritize climate solutions and that'll really help give businesses and investors, policymakers a place to focus so that we're not just like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks, but we can be really hyper strategic and focused with the very limited time we have to try to limit warming to where we need to. And also kind of then, you know, talking about these solutions that address that have what we call co-benefits, where they're solutions in their own right for other things that we care about, you know, for human health, for well-being, for more equitable, walkable cities, you know, these solutions that address other things and improve other things in society, and that also address climate change. So I'll be talking about both of those things and try and then bring it home to like an individual level, how we can all contribute to those things in the places we work in our individual lives and households. So I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. I don't always get that luxury and I'll get to see the presentation myself. So I'll be there in Columbus too. And so thanks for what you're doing. And if people want to learn more about Project Drawdown, I'm going to have links in my show notes, but Jamie, thanks for coming on the show. Awesome, Doug. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Franco Amalfi, the head of sustainability strategy of the global public sector at Google Cloud. Hi, Franco. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. And hi, everyone. I'm very happy to be with you. Well, it's a treat to have someone from Google on the show. And so let's just start off. Can you tell us what the global public sector program is at Google Cloud? Oh, absolutely, Doug. Happy to do so. So as you know, Google Cloud is a division of Google. And within Google Cloud, we have multiple industries. Google is investing heavily in building industry-specific teams. And the team that I work for, we're responsible to bring solutions to government. And our public sector, we work at the national level. We work at the central government, as well as uh, cities and municipalities, So we, and as well as healthcare. We cover all the different sectors of government. So what's your role specifically within that program? An excellent question. So my role is focused on sustainability. As my, I'm responsible to for a go-to-market strategy for all of our climate insights or solutions. As you know, governments globally are investing in climate adaptation strategies, and they're building new capabilities to help communities better adapt to climate change. And Google has a plethora of technology to help with that. And my team and I are responsible to bring those solutions to market. All right. You've probably seen this. Sustainability actually has been around a lot longer. And so this emerging issue of climate adaptation and resilience. So how is Google making that transition? Obviously, your program covers it. But as you know, sustainability has been around a lot longer. Oh, absolutely. Sustainability is not a new concept. What What is new, though, is the fact that uh, climate events are accelerating and they're happening more and more and they're much more extreme than they've ever been. And it's no longer just something that happens once ongoing, we're seeing more and more of these events. So that's why from a climate adaptation perspective, we are seeing governments putting significant funding 
behind programs to help communities become more resilient. That's the adaptation piece. Regarding sustainability, I mean, it's not new to Google. We've been doing focus on sustainability since day one, since 2007, when the company started. It's always been something that it was part of the Google culture, coming from the founders of Google. And we continuously work on this because we believe that it is our responsibility to help the world. I mean, we have a lot of people that use our technology, so we want to ensure that the way we deliver technology is the most sustainable way and that we actually provide tools to both our customers and consumers alike to help them make the right choices to leave the planet better than we found it. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of the on the ground work that you're doing, but let's just ground some people. What is the climate engine in regard to what Google's doing? If you look at sustainability, Google has three pronged strategies. The first one that we focus on is what Google itself as a company is doing. I mean, we are investing in our cloud. If you look at all the services that Google delivers, we deliver them through cloud capabilities. So we invest heavily in renewable energy. We've been 100% focused on renewable energy since 2017. We've made commitments to be carbon-free by 2030. We use sources such as wind, solar, geothermal, and many others to remove our carbon footprint. We also invest heavily in technology from an AI and machine learning perspective to to use and optimize all the energy that we use in our data centers. I mean, we worked with one of our divisions called DeepMind. We built algorithms to reduce the amount of energy for going towards cooling and as well as optimize how the energy is used and almost 100% of our energy in our data centers is used for compute purposes. So we are twice as efficient as the other hyperscalers, and we continuously find work on new ways of reducing our carbon footprint from our data centers. And also, one of the other areas in our data centers, which is a key component of how data center runs, it's the usage of water, is ensuring we actually use water very efficiently and that we also generate more water than we actually use. So and you, you may have heard of our new office that we opened in, in California and Sunnyvale. The entire office was built with sustainability in mind and generating more water than we use. So that's the first aspect of our strategy. The second aspect is building tools and technologies that our customers or our government partners or NGOs or researchers can use to make decisions from a sustainability perspective. Like, I mean, we've been working with researchers for the last 10 plus years, building the capabilities around the tool called Earth Engine that has informed a lot of research around biodiversity, around agriculture and water and many other topics that are related to climate change. And last but not least is how do we provide tools to everyday consumers. There are billions of people that use Google technology every single day. As an example, Google Maps, we have introduced capabilities recently where you can actually choose a route based on being the most eco-friendly. We launched that in North America earlier this year. And in less than six months, we took out the equivalent of a million cars off the road from a carbon footprint perspective. Also, Google search, if you're searching for flights, will present to you which flights, the, what CO2 impact of the flight, and we'll make recommendations if you go to a certain destination. If you take this flight, you'll have less carbon impact. As well as in Google search, if you surface a lot of information about bike paths, as well as uh, information about recycling capabilities, and even at hotels, what their sustainability efforts are. Because we believe everybody has a part to do on with sustainability, and the more we can provide information to the public and to everyone to make decisions, the more we'll have an impact as an organization. 
I'm sure there's a lot to explain, but I mean, just briefly, I know you guys have worked with the state of Hawaii and their Department of Transportation using some of these Google tools. Can you just briefly tell us about some of that work? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we worked with the, you know, Hawaii with the Department of Transportation. So one of the things is that Hawaii is a, they're a collection of islands and they have a lot of roads. So we actually work partner with a company called Cargo and we use the geospatial capabilities to actually look at different climate risks, things like wildfire, things like lava, erosion from the ocean and coastal flooding and so on. And we analyzed 2,500 miles of roads and we created indices for the state where we actually specifically tell them what the, the climate risk is for each and one of those roads. So that way they can make decisions as they were making investments uh, strategies for the future. As you know, the U.S. is providing significant funding to states from an infrastructure perspective, modernization perspective. They're using this information to make decisions both from future investments as well as how they should be maintaining these roads. As an example, if you're looking at extreme heat, which is one of the other things we analyzed as well, as the weather is changing and it's becoming warmer and warmer, there's an impact on asphalt and there's an impact on bridges and so on and so forth. They want to know how to maintain these bridges, how to maintain these roads. So we created an index with the state, which has multiple layers of data, and then they can analyze where do we have risk for coastal flooding, where we have risk for lava potential or for coastal erosion and so on. So we built them an analytics tool that they can use to make those decisions, which they then use internally and externally with the public to make decisions on how they can invest those funds and those modernization projects. They are probably one of the few states that has to worry about lava though, right? As a threat. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a very unique requirement. But actually, I wanted to mention it because Hawaii is a place that everybody dreams of going to. And I thought it was a unique thing that Hawaii has as a problem. Right. I think they're actually having one of their volcanoes has been extinct for, oh, not extinct, but dormant for a while. It's just exploding right now. So, yeah, I, I wonder if yes. the, 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 your platform has been put to use in, in the last few days. Maybe it has. I don't know. Have you heard anything? They use it regularly. I mean, it's part of their planning process and ongoing. We not only do the analysis, we do this ongoing. We mo- continuously monitor all the data that comes from satellites, and then we continuously update these indices so they have the most up-to-date information as well. It's Because climate adaptation is not just about a moment in time. It's ongoing. Things change constantly. So we want to know what's happening in the next week, what's happening next month, in two months from now. So we're using that information to inform those decisions. Okay. Could you give me one more example here? I know you also, and I'm originally from Florida, you were working with a South Florida water management district. What was that work? As you know, South Florida Water Management District is the largest water district in Florida. They provide water services to 9 million people, ranging from Orlando all the way to the Keys. And their work is groundbreaking because what they're trying to do, we're working together with them, is they want to ensure that they focus on water quality. It's such an, and especially around algal bloom, it's an issue in Florida that has happens regularly and it causes significant harm to the economy and to the vegetation and then marine life as well. If you remember a few years ago, there was all this red tide and blue tide in Florida, yeah. closed down entire beaches. So like a lot of communities lost a lot of revenue, as well as a lot of fish died and even vegetation died, which is very, very important to Florida because as you know, the economy in Florida is based around water. So what we're doing with them is we're using satellite imagery and we're combining that data with the data that they have collected themselves. They have very large networks of sensors that they collect. So we combine this data so we can inform the scientists and give them better information on how these algal bloom are forming 
So that way they can start doing treatments. The other thing we're doing with them as well is we're working with one of the projects that they have in Florida. It's the largest restoration project in the world. It's the Everglades. So we are providing them from insights to help them with the Everglades restoration project as well. All right. Fantastic. All right. So I have a lot of local government listeners, state government listeners, and a lot of times some of these government entities really don't have, I guess, the technical expertise. And so how do you guys work that Google obviously has the technical expertise? If these groups want to work with you, is there a certain point they have to have a certain level of technical sophistication to even work with you? How do you guys provide a resource to maybe when there's not alignment when it comes to that expertise? Oh, that's an excellent question, Doug. As you know, one of the key reasons why people go to Google search is because it's the simplicity of using Google search and you, you type in a question and you get the answers in the seconds. So the, the, we are taking the same approach to bringing these consumer-like experiences to government and working with partners to actually create tools that are easy to use, that are built for business users. But of course, we have scientists that we work with. They use the more advanced technologies, but we really are thinking of the business users because ultimately there's only a certain amount of climate scientists out there. We have built a lot of capabilities ourselves. We work with many companies that are specialized in building capabilities around climate technology, companies like Cardo, companies like Climate Engine and others, which they've invested their entire teams with data scientists building these technologies. So when we deliver technology to our customers, which we bring, we bring our capabilities combined with partner knowledge and as well as implementation partners to so we can implement this quickly. We, our projects typically are in weeks and months, not in years. We do very rapid deployments and we actually build capabilities that allows users to use it for decision-making. That's one of the biggest challenges we have with climate is there's a lot of data. It's The data is not as easy as one would imagine to use. Sometimes we think having more data is a good thing. Not always. We're trying to rationalize all this data to make it very specific, very hyper-local, and bring it to the people that are making decisions in the context of the decision that they're looking at. So if you're looking at climate risk from a city perspective, as an example, is making a decision from an infrastructure structure perspective, or they're building a road, or they're building a new wastewater treatment. What is the economic impact? How do we connect the climate risk to economic activity? How do we connect it to the community and equity as well? So mobility. So we're looking at bringing a lot of different data sets together so that we, we can actually give them tools. So as people are making decisions, we can interrogate the data and say, oh, if I make this decision, this is going to be the impact and many other aspects of my city and my local jurisdiction is going to be impacted. So that's the approach we're taking, we believe. Uh, at the end of the day, we're trying to accelerate science into operations so we'll be able to get as many people as possible taking action so we can be better prepared for the future. Fantastic. So can you give us a sneak peek? We're having this pre-conference episode for the Innovation and Climate Resilience that Patel is coming on, and you're going to be one of the keynote speakers there. Can you give us a little sneak peek on some of the things that you're going to talk about? Maybe some of the things you talked about here, but just something so people know what might be there at the conference? First of all, I'm super excited to be participating with the Patel and the IOCR conference. One of the key topics I want to talk about is this is an audience that is mainly scientists that are creating incredible data that is very useful. So one of the theme of my talk is going to be around how do we get all this incredible science they created into the hands of users that are making decisions? 
So the whole discussion about using the data they created, applying data science, creating analytics, and putting it into a context to make decision. So that way we can really accelerate this whole science into operations. That's really the theme of my discussion is like, how do we get more people using all the great work they're doing? So that way we can accelerate and be able to take more action than we're taking today. Because unfortunately, like I said before, climate events are no longer an anomaly. They're happening more and more. How do we get better prepared and using all the great work that companies like Patel and others are doing so that we can actually get people making decisions? All right, great. Looking forward to your presentation. All right, Franco, thanks for coming on the podcast. I am looking forward to meeting you in person in Columbus in a few months. Awesome. So am I, Doug? Hopefully we'll see you there and see many of you that are listening in person and we'll have conversations together at the conference. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Aaron Sikorsky. Aaron is the director of the Center for Climate Insecurity. Hi, Aaron. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Doug. It's great to be back. Well, this is our second conversation, but this is part of the work that I'm doing with Battelle. But let's ground people that aren't familiar with your episode that we did before. What is the center? What do you do there? Sure. The Center for Climate Insecurity is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research institute that looks at how climate change is shaping the national security landscape. You know, we analyze risks, we promote policy recommendations for the U.S. government and others, and we convene across silos, interdisciplinary groups of folks looking at the risks posed by climate change to security issues, whether it's for the military, whether it's for U.S. foreign policy, a whole range of different things. Okay, so you're the director there, but what's like a typical day or a typical week? What's your specific role? Sure. So maybe I'll give you an example from today. I spent lunchtime today with congressional staffers talking about a new report we just released on China's climate security vulnerabilities. So a key role that we play is educating policymakers about some of these risks that are out there. I'll also spend time engaging with other think tanks, sharing some of our research. I'll talk to partners in other countries around the world who are looking at these risks, try and determine some best practices for militaries. I spend a lot of time talking to folks at the Pentagon here, but also with NATO and other actors to really figure out, okay, how is climate change upending our assumptions about how the world works, right? And what investments do we need to make, especially in adaptation and resilience to address these risks? We're going to circle back around to that China report. I want to talk a little bit about that, but we're going to see you at the Innovations in Climate Resilience Conference that Patel's putting on. How is national security related to climate resilience and adaptation? Sure. I mean, when it at its core, National security is about keeping Americans and America safe, right, from external threats. And for a long time, those threats were only considered to be from other states, right, other countries. Post 9-11 and the terrorist attacks here at home, that definition was expanded to include non-state actors, right, terrorist groups. But now there's a recognition that, you know, so-called actorless threats, trans-border, cross-international threats like pandemics, like climate change, pose real risks to Americans here at home as well. So when we look at our critical infrastructure, right, we look at our military infrastructure here at home, Climate hazards, whether it's hurricanes on the Gulf Coast or droughts in the central part of the country, have real serious impacts on the lives and livelihoods of Americans. And so thinking through how we pursue adaptation and resilience to those threats, while, of course, also continuing to try and cut emissions and mitigate. But, you know, as we saw this summer with the heat waves across the country, those threats are already here. And so whether we're talking about the National Guard or Department of Homeland Security or the U.S. military, all of those institutions need to be thinking about how climate hazards are affecting threats to Americans. 
Okay, Aaron, just recently COP27 concluded in Cairo, Egypt. First off, what is COP27 and how did national security play into it? Sure. So the Conference of Parties meetings, which happen every year, are where the world countries come together to talk about how they're meeting or making new commitments to cut emissions, right? It's part of the UN's process, the UNFCCC, which is all about getting countries to work towards cutting emissions, reaching the Paris Agreement goals, right, which were made in 2015. So it's a time of international negotiation amongst countries, but then also obviously a lot of non-state actors, NGOs come to try and push ambition as well. And I think the way that we see security come up in these COP meetings most clearly is as a justification for why investing in both mitigation, cutting emissions, and adaptation is so critical. So explaining the security risks that will come if we continue on the path we're on now of not investing in adaptation in already fragile states, for example, you know, countries that are already at risk of conflict say a place like Pakistan, which was, you know, a third of the country was inundated earlier this year in unprecedented flooding due to climate change. If we're not investing in adaptation and resilience in countries like that, then the risk of terrorist groups that exist there taking advantage of instability in a country that's armed with nuclear weapons, that poses a real risk to the United States and, and other countries around the globe. So that's the context in which security comes up in these conversations is that's a reason we need to make these investments and changes in, in how we tackle climate issues. So at least here in the United States, they gave the impression, at least some media outfits gave the impression that adaptation was front and center at COP27. <laughs> I hear that and I'm never quite sure. Neither of us were on the ground there. But what's your sense? Did it at least get more of a priority? Because I know in previous COPs that it, it wasn't really highlighted much at all. Yeah, I do think it is more of a part of the conversation in ways that it hasn't been in the past. And I think this is largely due to countries in the global south, to developing countries pushing and saying, look, we're already seeing these impacts from climate change and we need help to adapt. I also think there's increasing recognition. I mean, The Economist had an article right before COP that, you know, this goal of staying at 1.5 degrees above of warming above pre-industrial temperatures is really challenging now. And if we're not planning for adapting to a warmed world, right, that we're going to be in a world of hurt. And so I just think there's a little more realistic understanding of the importance of adaptation. I will say, though, that I think it was a lot of talk about adaptation. I'm not sure there was a lot of action in terms of investment, actual dollars being <laughs> committed to adaptation, at least not at the levels that are needed in a lot of places. All right, we're going to pivot. And you'd mentioned it a little bit earlier. You just recently published a report, China's climate security vulnerabilities. Obviously, we can't dig too much into that. But can you give an overall summary of what you were covering there? Sure. I mean, really, what we were just trying to look at is how is China itself going to be affected by climate change? Because I think to understand China's behavior on the world stage when it comes to climate, it's really important to have a good picture of what kind of risks they face at home and how the government is planning for those risks. And obviously, China gets a lot of credit for having a pretty robust national adaptation plan to deal with these hazards. But what the report looks at is what are some of the weaknesses in that plan? What are some of the gaps in China's own strategies? And what kind of security concerns might we see arise from those gaps? And, and what should the United States be doing and thinking about in its engagement with China and trying to understand China as we compete 
with China and a lot of other geopolitical realms, how climate change will affect that. And so it was really trying to take a deep dive look at China's own vulnerabilities so that we as outsiders have a better understanding of where they might be coming from on the climate topic. All right. This this question I've been not quite sure how to ask this, but I th- you think about China's vulnerabilities and pe- some I, groups in the United States are looking at China as a national security threat. And I mean, y- you know what I mean there. And so if climate change is going to like reveal some vulnerabilities, I don't want them to be vulnerable. I don't want it to be an unsettled country. But is that something that different countries look at? And it's like climate change is actually working to the advantage of other countries because it's going to unsettle China? Well, you know, I think that there's a couple of things there. I mean, some of that unsettling is perhaps, not, even though we're in competition with China, not good for us, right? We've learned through COVID how much we rely on the supply chain, right, from China. And if that gets disrupted, that it has effects here at home because we're connected to them. And so that is a concern that that we need to understand and what climate change might do to disrupt those supply chains. I do think in terms of competition with China, especially outside China's borders with other countries in the Indo-Pacific, There are real opportunities there for the United States because those countries are very concerned about climate hazards and we can be a a strong partner in their adaptation and resilience that gives us an upper hand, frankly, in the competition with China. And we should think about that. And, you know, I would hope that our military, when they're thinking about potential risks of conflict with China, will integrate an understanding of how climate change is shaping the Chinese military and its abilities and, and whether or not China's adequately adapting to that reality. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not quite sure. I don't want China, you don't want populations to be exposed or anything, but I just wonder if there's some CIA, some obscure report saying it's going to benefit the U.S. <laughs> that China is sort of unsettled by climate change in long-term national security implications. And so I, I'm sure people are having these thoughts, but it's just, it's, I guess it's unusual what climate change is going to do to countries. Yep. Yep. And certainly, I think something we need a better understanding of not only of China, but also here at home and and with our other allies and partners, too. You know, we think we might be able to rely on certain allies and partners for things in different conflict situations. But if their countries are being disrupted by climate hazards and they have to spend all their time focused internally on responding to such hazards, you know, they won't be available for other things. So that's why, again, this investment and adaptation isn't just that it's a good thing to do or a nice thing to do because we in the U.S. have emitted so much over time, but it actually helps our own security interests to make those investments in other countries. All right. That's another episode that we've got to do. But OK, we're going to move on here. How <laughs> how How is the current administration prioritized climate change national security? How's the Biden administration doing? They're doing a really good job. And I think, frankly, other compared to other administrations, I mean, they're the most forward leaning on pushing the national security community to integrate climate change into its work. You know, the administration just released its national security strategy in October, I think, of this year. And for the first time, really, climate change was put on par with threats from other states. And it was made clear that climate change is at the top of their security concern. And they've they've invested a lot at the Pentagon, the State Department at USAID into building a climate strong workforce that can understand these issues. You know, they're doing war gaming at the Pentagon to think about how climate change will shape conflict, got really key personnel and, and senior leadership positions who talk about this all the time. So I give this administration a, a strong grade on its prioritization of climate. I think the challenge is 
you know, sustaining those programs over time, building the workforce to sustain it over time. It, it takes time to do that, right? And so they've had a couple of years and they made a lot of progress, but there's a lot more to be done. So you do a lot of speaking, public speaking, and probably in front of groups that aren't even necessarily that familiar with national security and climate resilience and adaptation. What's a common question that comes to you that, you know, it, that I guess maybe you'll, it's difficult for you to answer, but I, I'm curious as you're talking about this issue, it must be very interesting for a lot of folks. Yeah. I mean, one question I get sometimes is, aren't you worried that if you talk about climate change as a security issue, that you're going to securitize climate change? And then the military will be the only answer <laughs> to, mm. to the climate threat. And which I, I understand that concern, but I also, I think identifying something as a security risk doesn't mean that the military is the only solution, right? And I also think that it's, you know, frankly, the security framework is a way to reach folks who maybe don't care about climate for the environmental reasons, right? Right. And if you can put it in a national security context, that brings new people to the table, which I think is important. So that's, I guess, one question I get. Sometimes I get questions about, you know, well, wouldn't it be better to just eliminate the military altogether so you're not, they're not emitting carbon? I mean, and, and that's, a, that's an interesting question, I think, is that the military, I mean, it is a large institutional emitter of carbon because it's a very large institution. But when you look at its percentage of overall U.S. emissions, it's a, less than 1% of U.S. emissions. So it's certainly important, but, you know, eliminating the military would not solve our climate problem either. <laughs> so that's also a question I get sometimes. Well, I, I think just the all hands on deck is probably the best approach, but even talking about the military yes. framework, and you and I chatted briefly about this before in the previous episode, it's just, I don't like seeing those stories about how it's going to impact coffee production or the wine industry. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's helpful, even though it is. I just, that's not really raising the urgency level. So yeah, I, I think the military, the, like you said, it'll hopefully attract more people to take this issue more seriously. Yeah. If people wanted to learn a bit more about national security and climate change, they're really getting started in this and they just want to educate themselves. What do you recommend they they get some of that the, that background? Sure. Well, I mean, we have a website that we stood up a few years ago called Climate Security 101. If you Google that, I think it comes up and that's a good starting place. It's got a lot of FAQs and things there. I would also encourage folks, both the Defense Department and the U.S. intelligence community last year released public reports on climate security risk. And those are great places to start because they're kind of broad overviews. They've got the you know, stamp of approval from the U.S. government. And so they're good documents to engage with. I also, you know, I'm a big fan. One of our non-resident fellows here at the Center for Climate and Security, a, a professor named Josh Busby out of UT Austin, published a book last year called States and Nature, which is about climate security risks. And even though it's an academic book, it's very, it's written in a very non-academic way. It's very accessible. And he does comparative case studies of countries where they had the same climate hazard, but in one country, it turned into a conflict risk and the other, it didn't. And he explores why that is. And I think that's another good place to start. All right, great. Could you give us a sneak peek on, because you're going to be a keynote speaker at this Innovation and Resilience Conference in Columbus. Can you give us a sneak peek on some things that you're going to talk about? Sure. I mean, I'm going to talk about a lot of what we went over today. I, I think one of the key areas of focus for my talk will be about how climate change is undermining a lot of 
planning assumptions we have in the security community, right? And if you're starting with bad data and bad assumptions, you're going to get bad policies. And so we need to do what we used to call in the intelligence community where I worked a key assumptions check, right? How are our assumptions? You know, we see a lot of newspaper articles these days that say, oh, that so-and-so town has experienced 300-year floods in the past five years. And it's like, well, they're not 100-year floods anymore, right? So we need to remap our planning to change some of our assumptions. And so I'll I'll be talking about that. And I'll be talking about concrete opportunities as well, because it's not only about climate security risks, but it's also about opportunities that bringing a climate lens to the national security work that is done by the U.S. can help build peace in places, right? And offer new opportunities for cooperation between countries that might be in conflict or have mistrust between them. And so I want to make sure that there's a hopeful part of the story as well. All right. And we all know sometimes you just get inspired and you want to take it a different direction. No one's going to hold you to this, but we just thought we'd give (laughs) a little bit of a sneak peek. All right, Aaron, always a pleasure talking to you and thanks for coming on. And I look forward to meeting you in person in Columbus. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, Doug. Hey, Adapters, we're back with Dr. Justin Sanchez to wrap up this episode. Hey, Justin, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Doug. All right. We just heard from some of your keynote speakers, really interesting group of people. I know a couple of them. I'm really excited to actually get there into Columbus, Ohio. Can you remind us again about the dates and times and locations and all that? Yeah. So it's March 28th through 30th, 2023, Columbus, Ohio. We have an extraordinary venue that we are hosting the event in multiple stages with this highest profile speakers in the climate community that you have ever heard of. And then also joined by them representation from national labs, universities, other industries, government officials. Uh, the networking part of this is really extraordinary. So it's two and a half power in a pack days of climate technologies, climate resilience, climate adaptation, all of the domains that are so important for solving this problem that we're all living with here today. Yeah, I love the coffee uh, breaks and the lunches at these conferences the best, even though there's so much great content there. That's when you're meeting people and you're making partnerships. So that's great. And that's when I'll be there recording. You'll see me in the hallways with my microphone. So I'm looking forward to that. So just before we wrap this up, what are you most looking forward to for this conference? I'm really looking forward to hearing those bold ideas that are going to be shared by all the participants. If there's anything that fires me up the most is hearing those ideas and then being able to talk to the people firsthand on how those ideas are ultimately going to change the world around us. It's something that you can't get just sitting at home. It's something you can't get just from reading something online. It's something you can only get on kind of coming to a conference like this and being a part of the event and, and meeting those innovators and leaders that are out in our community. I'm, I'm so looking forward to this. But again, I can't wait for the event to be here and to be a part of it. All right, Justin, thanks for coming on. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person and I'll see you in Columbus. Doug, thanks so much for having me. It was wonderful to be a part of your podcast and I look forward to being at the event with you too. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Franco Amalfi, Jamie Alexander, and Aaron Sikorsky for participating in this episode. If you want to learn more about the work they do and their organizations, check out my show notes with links. And thanks to Justin for walking us through the Innovations and Climate Resilience Conference. Don't forget, if you're thinking of attending, you can still get the early bird discount if you register before January 23rd. 
All right. So what's your adaptation story? Do people that you engage with understand what is climate adaptation? Are you finding that webinars and white papers really aren't resonating in ways that promote your work? Well, consider telling your story in a podcast. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation story, consider sponsoring a whole episode of America Adapts. That's right, a whole episode. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location to record these sponsored podcasts, which allow you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me behind the scenes to identify experts that represent the amazing work you're doing. Some of my partners in this process have been World Wildlife Fund, multiple universities like Harvard, UCLA, MIT. I've worked with Natural Resources Defense Council and corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who truly represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. All right, most projects have communications right into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than the white paper or conference presentation many groups work into their communication strategies. There is no better platform than this podcast to get the word out on adaptation to some of the most influential and active adaptation professionals in the world. And if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and you will enjoy it. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and all the wonderful guests that I've interviewed and my own experiences in adaptation. I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can reach me at my website, americadapts.org. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Let me know how you work in this space. And if you don't, just tell me what you get out of the podcast. It's extremely useful to me. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.